you have your Bibles, please open to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We will start with verse uh, 3, although we're not going to talk about those. We're going to talk about 6 through 9, really. We are in the middle of a series called Defiant Hope, a hope that fights back, a hope that stands up against discouragement and despair, a hope that preaches to itself the promises of God. In Psalm 42, the psalmist asks, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? And then he exhorts himself, Put your hope in God, for yet is He your Savior and your God. We saw where Abraham, in, in Romans chapter 4, he hoped against hope. God had given him a promise that he would have children, and his children would be as numerous as the, sea, or the sand on the seashore and the, and the stars in the sky. And he hadn't had any children. He was uh, as good as dead, and his wife's womb was dead. And yet he hoped in hopeless situations. He defied despair and discouragement. Then we saw last week that Job, during his uh, many trials, made the great statement that even if God slays me, yet will I hope in Him. And so what we're talking about in this series is a hope that is defiant, that refuses to give up on the promises of God regardless of what the situations look like. Let's read God's Word together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of much greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. You are receiving the gold of your faith the salvation of your soul. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace of us to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of things that they have now been told you by those who have been preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look at these things. The Word of God to God's people. Let's pray. Now, Father, would you take the preaching of this Word, may it be faithful, may it be courageous, may it be comforting, May it be convicting, even converting a people. May we have in our hearts defiant hope that not gives up on the promises of the power of God. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ralph Davis loves to talk about passages like this, or kind of like eating pizza. And what he means by that, you know, you get one of those things that has all the toppings on it, like we do, you know, those Supremes. And the thing that holds everything together is all that, you know, that gooey cheese that they put on top. And sometimes you take a bite out of that pizza and the cheese pulls everything off with it, right? And all you have is just, you know, naked piece of dough because the cheese has pulled it off. He says, that's what these kind of passages are. And you have to look for the cheese that holds everything together. And the cheese of this passage that holds everything together is the hope, the living hope that God gives you. You cannot look at this whole passage without coming to a conclusion that the most important thing in this passage is that hope we have. And so we looked last week at this passage and we want to continue. We want to talk about a hope that rejoices in the midst of trial, a hope that realizes the purposes of trial, and a hope that looks forward to the revelation of God in the last day in Christ. 
But we want to look at the passage that, that, that our hope allows us to rejoice in the face of trial. If you look at verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And what Peter is doing sounds paradoxical. He says, You are rejoicing, though during this time of rejoicing you have had to suffer many grievous trials. So you're suffering while you're rejoicing, and you're rejoicing while you're suffering. And we usually don't do that. The Bible says, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. We usually do them one at a time. You know, you go to somebody's wedding and you rejoice in the celebration. You go to somebody's funeral and you grieve with their loss. But here Peter is talking about something you do simultaneously. If you were to look these words up in the original language, you would find out they are both present tense verbs. While you are rejoicing, you are also grieving during these different trials. One writer says it like this. Are they grieving or are they rejoicing? Are there tears or is there laughter? Pick one. Peter's really trying to show us the wonder of the new birth. You see what it creates and God creates within us. An ability, a new disposition, a capability both to rejoice and to grieve at the same time. Because we have been entered into the family of God and have come to take of life and partake of the life to come. The resurrection life. Because that's already ours. We have more joy than any other human being in all the world. And yet because we continue to live in this veil of tears full of misery and sin, don't we still have reason to grieve? The world cannot understand it. How can there be joy in the midst of grievous trials and trials that cause us to grieve? They're weeping and they're rejoicing at the same time. Well, the question is, how do you do that? And the key is in this word that he says, in this you rejoice in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. What is the this? This points backwards. This points not to what God is doing in your life, but to what God has done in your life. That by the mercy of God, by the sheer mercy of God, He has caused you to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And He has given you a living hope. And He's given you, a, a through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that will never fade away, perish, or spoil. God has already done that in your life. And you look at your present situation, and you look at those things that, that the world cannot take away. They cannot take away the work of the Holy Spirit on our heart. That brought us from darkness into light, from death into life, from being aliens to being part of the family of God. They can't take away from us the inheritance that is ours, that is kept in heaven for us, guarded in heaven. And we are guarded for it so that we'll reach our inheritance. And in the midst of our trials, Peter says, look back at what has already happened. In this you greatly rejoice. You rejoice because of what God has done. And what God has promised to do. And it is amazing how much it helps you rejoice in the midst of what God is doing. It's really interesting that Jonathan Edwards, who you think of as being one of the greatest theologians of our time, which he, he was. And Jonathan Edwards is better quoted than read because I, when I read him, he's kind of over my head. I'd rather hear somebody tell me what he said usually. Maybe uh, Bill and, and, and Ben are a little bit different. But uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, was the greatest American theologian, and yet he was voted out of his church at one point by a vote of 222 to 32. That's a pretty resounding rejection by your congregation. And why was he voted out? What had he done? He, voted, he was voted out because he insisted that only people who were saved should take communion. He believed that you needed to be able to examine yourself and admit you needed a Savior and men despised that so much they rejected him. It 
would have destroyed anybody else. But one of his friends said he continued to be joyful because his joy was in God and it was beyond the reach of his enemies. His joy was in God and it was beyond the reach of his enemies. I think one of the things we often do is we, we don't look up enough. We don't look up at what we have in Christ. Remember in Pilgrim's Progress, there was a character called the Muckraker. And you look up, you Google Muckraker, and you don't get a real answer. You get something about a, a political uh, reporter or something that digs up dirt on people. That's not what a Muckraker is in Pilgrim's Progress. He is a person who rakes muck, yuck, junk, you know, undescribable stuff. And it describes a guy that has a rake, and he's raking up all this filth. And an angel or something comes before him and holds above his head a golden crown. And the man never looks up from his muck raking to look at the crown that is his in Christ. And I think that is what Peter is saying. That in the midst of your trials, look up. God has given you an inheritance. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Rejoice in that. But he says more than rejoice in that. He says, look at this trial. And he mentions three things about it that are encouraging. He mentions, one, that these trials are temporary. These trials are necessary, and these trials are various trials. It says, these have come, so you look at that and you look at that, in this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. That's still verse 6. Let's talk about all kinds of trials first. Now, Ralph Davis translates this multicolored trials, like Joseph's multicolored jacket. You know, multicolored, many different colors. And I don't think some of you appreciate what multicolored trials really are because you've never had to have a box of 64 crayons with a self-sharpener in the back. Have you ever had that? When we went to school, you know, the thing that you had to have, you had to have that box of crayons that had 64 colors in there. And you know, over the years, those colors changed. There were different colors in 58 and 59. Those weren't my years. There were different colors in 59 through 62, and my years would be 63 through 90. And some of them were apricot, bittersweet, black, blue, blue, gray, blue, green, blue, violet, brick, red, brown, burnt orange, burnt sienna, cadet blue, carnation pink, copper, corn flower, what is that? Forest green, gold, goldenrod, gray, green, green, blue, green, yellow, green, red, lavender, lemon. You get the idea. 64 of them. And you might have had to suffer through multicolored trials. Your trials aren't your trials. They aren't your trials. They aren't your trials. They aren't your trials. But every one of us faces unique, distinct, different trials at different stages of our life. And you could, you could stand here and, and list them. They're marital difficulties. They're prodigal children. They're prayers that aren't answered yet. They're illnesses that have to be endured. They're griefs that have to be suffered. They're financial uh, troubles that have to be struggled through. They're friendship and relationships. They're severed. They're people who have offended you. You could list them on and on. And Peter says these are various kind of trials you have to endure, but he says, hey, they're, they're temporary for a little while. Now, I don't think he means for a day or two. I think he means temporary in the sense of when you compare it to eternity, they don't last forever. You know the old story about the pastor who asked the people what their favorite verse in the Bible was? And this old farmer finally stood up and said, my favorite phrase in the Bible was, it came to pass. And the preacher said, why is that so important? He said, because nothing came to stay. It came to pass. Nothing comes to stay. Even the trials that we face are temporary, and yet they're working for us eternal value. 
It says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Even our trials are achieving for us eternal glories that far outweigh them all. And trials are necessary. Did you read that in verse 6? In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to. May have had to. If you translate that or you look at that in the ESV, it translates that necessary. If you had to, it's necessary. And so what Peter is saying, these trials are necessary to our Christian life. Without trials, our, our faith will not become strong and will not persevere the trials that are ahead of us. I got to thinking about boot camp. I know Bill Berry's probably been through boot camp. Some of y'all have been through boot camp. It's something that I just can uh, only have nightmares about. And some of you have done more than that, and your children have done more than that. They've gone through survival training, where they do all sorts of things that make sure that if you get captured, that you uh, can survive in, in all kinds of situations. And the people who talk about just what they can say about these uh, survival training, they're awful stuff. But you'd never go into the special forces without that training. You would never go into a season of football without preseason football, without getting in shape or something. Trials are necessary to make our faith real and true. John Newton said it like this, All God's sins is needful. Nothing can be needful that He withholds. Did you hear that? All God's sins is needful. And nothing can be needful He withholds. So trials are have a variety, they're temporary, and they're necessary. So that leads us to the second point where we see that our hope helps us realize the purpose of those trials. You go to verse 7 now. In verse 7, these, these trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The purpose of these trials... The purpose is to prove that your faith is genuine, that it's the real deal, that it's not fake, that you, you know, it'd be terrible to come to the end of your life, a life of ease and comfort, and to think you had faith and you didn't. And so that that won't happen to us, God in His wisdom and His goodness and His grace since trials to prove that our faith is genuine to us. So that we won't, quote, fall away. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the seed and the sower. Uh, that the sower represents Jesus and the seed represents the gospel. And the souls represent the hearts of men and women who hear the gospel. And what Jesus says is that the sower goes out to sow and he sows his seed on the path. And the bird representing the devil comes and, and gets it away. So that when you leave hearing the gospel, you know, preached on Sunday morning before you get to the sidewalk out there, you've forgotten. It's just water off a duck's back. And, but there's also the temptation that you receive it and then uh, you have the weeds choke it out. The things of the world choke it out so that on Monday morning you're so busy doing everything. The Word of God has no bearing on your life. And then the third one is that the Word falls on rocky ground. And when persecutions come and trials come, they fall away. And Jesus is saying the same thing that Peter is saying. These trials prove that your faith is genuine. It's the real thing. It's the only thing that can save you. 
and to hope in anything else, to put your hope in anything else is dangerous. I was reading, and when I read, I don't write down all the details of illustrations I think I'll remember, and then I remember I'm not that good at remembering. And uh, remember, I better write them down next time. But I read this uh, story about these mountain climbers. And there were four of them, I believe, and they were linked together. You know how they are. And so everybody, you know, anchors himself into the rock so that if anybody falls, the other one will hold them up. You know, you've seen that. Maybe some of you have done that. You know, we'll pray for you if you do it again next time. But anyway, uh, these four men were climbing, and the bottom guy fell, and he pulled the second guy off, and the two in the top anchored themselves as hard as they could into the rock, you know, and, and held on, and expected the, the rope to kind of expand and snap them back up. It expanded, and it broke. And they plunged to their death. And when they got to looking at the rope, the rope didn't have the red string running through it, which was the genuine deal. It wasn't a real good rope. They had trusted the wrong thing. And Jesus sends trials to make sure you trust only Him. He's the only rope that will save you. But He also sends trials to purify your faith. Your faith is like gold. It's precious. It's valuable. It's a treasure. And he talks about that being like a refining of gold. I know that I've heard illustrations about gold being refined, but I never really looked up the process. Do you know how high the fire has to get to turn gold into a liquid that they skim off the impurities? 1,943 degrees. 1,943 degrees. I didn't know they could get that hot. But when you get... I kind of wonder what they use to hold the gold that gets that hot. What's that, what's that durable? That's another story. But when the gold is liquefied, then they can take the impurities off. And that temperature isn't meant to harm the gold. It's to develop the gold into something more precious and valuable. And that's what trials do to us. It makes our, our faith more precious. We sang it in the hymn, didn't we? Didn't we sing, When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy goal to refine. God uses trials and we recognize it to purify. But he also uses it to bring praise and honor to him and to us. Let me explain. It says, these have come so that your faith, then it's a parenthetical state, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. So then you have, goes back to your faith. Your faith may be proven genuine, and your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Scholarship really debates what is being honored, praised, and glorified. Of course the answer is our faith is to honor, praise, and glorify God. But Edmund Clowney, who used to teach at Westminster Seminary, the, the better translation is that this refers to your faith. God will honor, praise, and glorify. And you go, oh no, it can't be. The Bible clearly teaches that God rewards us some way we don't understand it. He rewards His own grace in our lives. But the Bible says that He will not forget one cup of water you gave in the name of the Lord. He will not, re re he will not forget... One visit you made to the hospital. One visit you made to the prison. One time you gave to the poor. One time you gave to the naked. He's praising His own grace, but He's praising it in us somehow. It is humbling. And whatever crowns we receive, we cast them at the feet of Jesus. 
But there is a sense that we read in our, read in our benediction all the, all the time. He will present you with great joy to God. You will be judged. And all that you have done and not done that are right and true and good, you will be ashamed of and sad for, but they will fall off into the sea of God's forgetfulness because there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And He will reward His people for the faith they've had in Him with eternal life. But it's all of grace. It's mind-boggling. And then wrap up the third point. Then all of this happens at the revelation of Christ at the last day. Verses 5 and 7 talk about the last time, the second coming. And Peter mentions it several different times. He talks about when you see Him, and when He's revealed to you. And Peter is praising them that even though you've never seen Him, you love Him. And even though you don't see Him now, you believe in Him. And you begin to wonder, what's he thinking about? I think he's thinking about the two different Sundays that he met with his disciples. He's thinking about Thomas who says, I won't believe unless I see. Unless I put my hand in his, my fingers in his wounds in his hand and my hand in his side. I'm not going to believe. And Jesus comes back the next week, stands in the midst of him and says, Okay, here I am, Thomas. Put your fingers here. Put your hand here. And then Jesus says, Blessed are those who see and believe, but more blessed are those who believe without seeing. The thing that unites you to Christ is not seeing miraculous things, but the fact that God miraculously enables you to believe in the invisible, the indescribable, the unexpressible Jesus Christ. That's faith. And that faith unites us to Christ. It keeps us in the faith. It keeps us persevering. The faith that sanctifies us, also the faith that justifies us, sanctifies us, is vital to our prayer. It keeps us safe in perseverance until the very end. You've never seen Him. That's the reason every artwork that describes Christ is wrong. You've never seen Him. Nobody's ever seen Him that drew a picture of Him. And yet you love Him. Let me tell you about a guy by the name of Isaac Watts. wrote a lot of hymns, as you know. And Isaac Watts got into a letter-writing relationship with Elizabeth Singer, and she was a hymn writer as well. And through those letters, they kind of fell in love. You know, I like the way he thinks, I like the way she thinks, I like what she writes, I like her hymns and things like that. And even in their letters there were talk of marriage between Isaac Watts and Elizabeth Singer. And when she met him, she could not get over the fact that he was about five feet tall, had yellowish skin, his head was disproportionately large for his frail body, and his face boasted a large crooked nose, small gray eyes. And yes, she said this, If only I could say that I admire the casket as much as I admire the jewel in it. Do you hear what she's saying? I admire your heart and your soul, but I can't get past what you look like. I can tell you that won't happen to us. That Jesus is more beautiful than you can ever imagine. One of the tributes to Tim Keller this week was a man who made a trip to Seoul, and they were talking about different things on the trip. And after he got through with the conference, the man traveling with him, he said, uh, Tim, I just want to say, I don't know how to say it, but your sermon just made Jesus more beautiful than ever. Tim Keller's response said, isn't that the purpose? I hope you see Jesus as beautiful today as your Savior so that you can rejoice even in the midst of trials. Let's pray. You are fairer than 10,000. You're fairer than the lilies of the valley. You're better than the rose of Sharon. You're more beautiful than the most glorious bride we've ever seen. And yet we've never seen you. 
We love you without seeing you. We've seen you by faith in the Scriptures. And what we see is amazing. Your humility to come and be born. To become a servant. To give yourself. To give your life for us. The way that you were res resurrected and full of glory where uh, people couldn't even recognize you. And you are more beautiful than we ever imagined. You'll never disappoint our, our, our reality of seeing you as you are. And the Bible says that all who put their hope on seeing you make themselves pure even as you are pure. May our love and your loveliness make us godly people. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.